Welcome to the X-Men Task Podcast. My name is Willie Simpson. My name is Sonia Rappaport. Sonia, today we are taking a break from X-Men Evolution and we're going to be discussing Wonder Woman 1984. But before we do, uh, I want to get the plugs out of the way. You can follow me on Twitter, at Willie Simpson. Join the X-Men Task Podcast Facebook group where you can interact with us and every and all the other fans of the show. Uh, and rate and review us five stars on iTunes, whatever podcast service you use. And also you can check us out on Twitch as we will uh, are starting to occasionally get on there. Twitch.tv slash Willie8911. Probably see more of us on Twitch sometime in 2021. But that's a story for another day. Uh, Wonder Woman, 1984. Mm-hmm. Well, for starters, I want to say this is going to be a very spoiler-heavy episode. So if you haven't seen the movie, uh, you know, see it for yourself first before you bother listening to us. Um, b- but before we even jump into the movie, I do want to talk about our prep work we did uh, before watching it. Right. Which was quite fun. It was quite fun. We didn't go back and watch the 2017 Wonder Woman movie. We've seen it before. We've talked about it on here. Um, But instead, we went and saw the 1970s Linda Carter TV series of Wonder Woman, which is on HBO Max. Yeah, remastered beautifully on HBO Max. Right. I mean, we just watched the first few episodes. But the first episode is like an hour and a half long you see her on Paradise Island uh, growing, well, not growing up, but before she <laughs> <laughs> comes to America. And um, it kind of, it follows the same type of storyline as the 2017 Wonder Woman movie, actually. It, it was a shockingly, fairly faithful retelling of the Wonder Woman uh, origin story. Yeah. Which was never, when you're talking about TV shows from the 60s and 70s, uh, you never, you were definitely never guaranteed to get any kind of faithful comic origin whatsoever. Right. Uh, Because, you know, like, just look at the Adam West show, where I think in the very first episode they make a fleeting reference to the fact that Batman's parents were murdered, and that's why he's Batman, but that's all the backstory you'll ever get on that show. <laughs> right. You have no idea, like, why Robin's there, really, or what they're doing. There's, there's like, no tortured Bruce Wayne character whatsoever. It's just zany adventures. Right. They're just, they're Batman and Robin. They've been so for some time. The villains are there. Nothing is explained. In the Wonder Woman show with Linda Carter, they do a decent job of explaining everything. Yeah. But then also zany adventures ensue. Like, Well, they are, they're certainly zany, but I think they were trying to make it as serious as they could with the premise of Wonder Woman because it is, it's like a pretty, uh, I wouldn't say gritty <laughs> but I would not it, say gritty. It's like your standard World War Two uh, early television drama. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, yeah. Like there's spies, there's sabotage, there's some World War Two politics, there's heroes, there's villains. It's not like I, I mean the villains are the Nazis, and you see them with their swastikas and and yeah. their other oh, regalia. So it's not like they're d- dumb doofuses. No, they're dangerous it's not. foes. It's, it's more. It's definitely more serious than the Adam West Batman, mm. but you still have Linda Carter like in her shiny underpants. <laughs> <laughs> she yeah, has to spin around and change into. Yeah. There's elements of it that are just a little lighthearted and silly feeling, but that's good. And, and you lo- you end up loving Linda Carter too. She does a great job. Uh, she she's got something special as Wonder Woman. Yeah, completely. We did spend quite a long time trying to figure out what was going on with her underpants outfit. <laughs> it's a little like confusing. Yeah. Just like if you haven't seen the show, just Google an image of what she looks like in the costume. The underpants, there's something weird going on there. They're like inflated or something. Yeah, it's like they didn't want to show her wearing underpants like a bathing suit so that it'd be sticking to her butt and you'd really see her curves. Um, it's like they made her wear an extra pair of shorts underneath. Right, yeah. Or something. It's like they stuffed a pair of shorts underneath the underpants. Despite that, she looks great. Yeah, and she, I think and she's she does fun. a great job. She's winning. As Wonder Woman, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, it was, like, fairly, like, true to the comics. And um, and that alone is, is kind of fun. And then, like, you know, we read a lot about the show, too, on Wikipedia. And what the interesting thing is World War... Uh, I mean, the first season's all set in World War II. But then in the season two, when they renewed the show, for budgetary reasons, they set it in contemporary times in the 1970s. And because, you know, obviously it's, like, cheaper to do a show that's set in the modern... Well, the then-modern day, as opposed to doing recreations of costumes and, uh, you know, like, prop airplanes and other sort of World War II props. Mm. But I, I like that... I, I kind of can't wait till we get to season two, because I like the element... Of like a massive time jump, and one of the funny things about it is, uh, 
you know, just like in the movie, Steve Trevor is the sort of love interest slash partner of Wonder Woman. And uh, she knows him in World War Two. But in season two, obviously, Steve Trevor would have been an old man. But they recast the same actor to play Steve Trevor Jr., which is, like, to me, really goofy and funny. Right, yeah. She doesn't get romantically involved with right. the they, son. They made clear that, that weird. Yeah, they made clear that it would have been... They acknowledge in the show that it would have been too weird for her to get involved with the son that she never knew Steve Trevor had. And, and then they also explain that, like, she disappeared after World War II... After the victory in World War II, she disappeared for 35 years and then decides to return to man's world. And then, you know, it's kind of shocked to learn that Steve Trevor has a son. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um... We did, so, you know, I also read some Wonder Woman comics. Uh, I have the Grant Morrison Earth One Wonder Woman a limited series he's been doing. And I think the third volume comes out next year, which I'm kind of excited to see. And I revisited that. Uh, you know, I love Grant Morrison. We've talked about him a lot in this podcast. He's, he's like a savant of comic book writing. Uh, and he does a really great job with the DC characters as well, Batman in particular. And I was, I was excited to see that when he was working on his own sort of Wonder Woman story what it would be like and uh it's fun it's like appropriately weird and messed up it really leans heavily into the greek mythology aspect of wonder woman Mm -hmm. and he comes up with his own screwed up backstory where uh like hercules had enslaved the amazon you know the the supposedly heroic hercules uh is like presented as a bad guy in the the grant morrison version and he's like his it starts off where his, like, goal and desire is to, like, rape and subjugate the Amazon women and make them into his slaves. But then uh, Wonder Woman's mother, you know, breaks free of Hercules and kills him. And then in a crazy twist, it's later revealed that, one, you know, similar to the, the 2017 movie where Wonder Woman's mother lied to her about being molded from clay, in the Grant Morrison version, that lies there too, but the mother reveals that your father was Hercules. And at first you're like, did Hercules rape the mother? But then she's had some like weird lines about like, oh, I used his DNA or something and mixed it to, like in some weird lab experiment. Like, I don't know. It, it, the Grant, Grant Morrison is uh, reliably crazy when it comes to that stuff. And it's a lot of fun to read. And it's interesting because I think in the, the 2017 Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman movie, she's the daughter of Zeus. Mm-hmm. So uh, the point is like, I feel like this has been the year of Greek mythology uh, revitalization in pop culture. Well, for you and me, anyway. Well, yeah, well, for me and you, we got really into it. I mean, like, it was spurred on by that video game we play obsessively, Hades. Right. Which is now, it's like, it's been up for many Game of the Year awards, which I think deservedly so. I think everyone should check out Hades if they haven't. It's like a cheap game, too. I think it's like only 20 bucks on Steam or on Nintendo Switch. Uh, but so I mean that game's all about being steeped in the, the Greek Greek mythology. Uh, you play a character, the son of hate, the god Hades, and you're trying to escape the underworld to reach the surface and to reunite with your Olympic family. And along the way, the Olympic gods help you. And there's like tons of dialogue between you and all the Olympic gods, and it's a lot of fun. And you know, it's their own like spin on Greek mythology itself. It's not like some like super ultra accurate version of Greek mythology. I mean, what does accurate even mean right, when it comes yeah. to Greek mythology? Yeah, there's it's so all, many right, yes, convoluted exactly. versions of it Right, so there's that. History. Yeah, I mean, Wonder Woman herself as a character being so popular now is also steeped in Greek mythology. Um, I don't know. I just, I find Greek mythology a very interesting topic. Right. Like, we never really saw those Clash of the Titan movies. Um, and we went back and we saw the original on Netflix. It was great. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Very silly. Uh, and um, and then we saw the remakes, too, with uh, the guy from Avatar, which were... Sam... Worthington. Worthington. Yeah, which were, like, not... They're all right. They're all right. Like, they weren't that awesome, but um, they were good enough. They were pulpy enough to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. Like, like for me and, and you, we've both been... Like, Seeing if we should become modern day Hellenists and uh, and start worshiping the Greek gods, um, I mean not really, but uh, we were looking into that as well just for fun to see like who are st- who's still worshiping the Greek gods in the year twenty twenty. Right. We weren't looking into conversion; we were just right. looking if it exists. I mean, to me, and the most does. interesting thing about that is like I just assumed that there had to have been people in an unbroken strand of history just still following the Greek gods, you know, throughout like since the ancient times to the modern day. Yeah. And the the truth I learned was that no, the Greek mythology and and then you know the Roman mythology which 
uh, mirrored it. It was like fully stamped out in the Dark Ages. That makes sense. Yeah. That like there were some right. Just- took over christianity just totally took over there were some cults here and there in some far-flung like regions of europe or eastern europe that had carried on some of the traditions but like at a certain point and like maybe in the year 1200 like the very last of the cults were completely stamped out and it truly was a dead religion it wasn't like this thing where you know there's some people keeping it alive somewhere like no it was gone and dead and it was uh and then you're like well okay but there are people today worshiping the greek gods and yeah, like there are for sure, like not many, like maybe a few thousand out mm. there. Um, but it was revitalized in like the 19th century by, I don't know, like, like fancy, like intellectual types, right? like uh, proto bohemians. <laughs> you know, by the time, like when the 19th century rolled around, it just seems that the uh, hegemonic control of like these great institutions be it you know governmental institutions religious institutions they'd finally like loosen their grip a little to allow intellectual types to explore some more like wild like free-minded notions like yeah what about reviving uh, greek mythology and seriously uh, worshiping it again mm-hmm. so uh, that that's like the origin of modern day what's known as hellenism you know the worship of those greek gods um but anyway the, the whole thing has just been like this weird li- like little like thing we've gotten into in the past year um it's i just find it all interesting and so in light of all that let's transition to talking about the movie now and like we said we're gonna spoil the whole thing so if you're still with us and you haven't seen it probably check it out first um this movie was quite the interesting experience so i mean let's start off with what everybody knows it was supposed to be released in theaters way earlier in this past year and then because of the pandemic, it got pushed back and pushed back to the point where they just said, screw it, we're just releasing it on HBO Max. So if you have the streaming service, you could watch it at home on Christmas Day, which is what we did. And truth be told, like we re- right after we finished watching the movie, uh, we recorded a podcast about it. And our, I would say that like our thoughts were so jumbled which was a real reflection of the confusing nature of the movie itself. I think we were mostly trying to parse out what the movie actually was about. Right. We were yeah. trying to follow the thread of the plot line, and it was hard. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we went back, and we re- like you know we're recording this a day after Christmas, so on December twenty sixth on the Saturday, and we went back and we listened to it like uh, I don't know. Let's let's get another stab at this because we're just like really confused, and I'm not even promising that this version will be less confused than the one that no one's ever going to get to hear uh, was. But um, I, I have very mixed feelings about this experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and the other thing I want to say is that my mixed feelings, they're not passionate feelings, which goes in contrast to what I see in the internet commentary on this film right now. I would say that the the reaction to this movie, just based on what I've seen offline, ranges from white-hot to nuclear in terms of the love-hate divide. Yeah, it's surprisingly polarizing. Like, it's ultra-polarizing, and that was not at all my experience with the movie. I didn't love the movie. I didn't hate the movie. But that just seems to be the only opinion you can have, love or hate it, right now. And my reaction after we finished watching it was, uh, you know, I think this movie was a misfire, and it had its problems, but I didn't take it too seriously. And there were parts that charmed me. I'm not going to lie, and we'll talk about some of that. But mostly I just thought it was just, like, not a good sequel. But at the same time, it fell a bit into the it's so bad, it's good category for me at times. And again, I know that might be a little bit confusing, but so is Wonder Woman 1984. For me, it's not not so bad, it's good. It just... it is confusing is, is the main <laughs> thing about it. And I can understand why a lot of people had a lot of problems with it. I wonder if I was a bit twisted and thought it was so confusing it's good. I was like, this is flying so far over my head that I'm actually enjoying this because it keeps zigging where I think it's going to zag. And um, I, I don't know. I, I, I found it to be a really confounding experience. And in a weird way, I valued it as a confounding experience just because it was different. Uh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was so, like, muddy and convoluted in a lot of places. Yeah. But, you know, I went in 
with like pretty high expectations, which tends to be a bad idea for most movies. You know, it's a good comparison. Like, I think it it has a lot of the same problems that the other DC modern DC movies had, the Zack Snyder ones, where those are just so overly confounding and confusing too. But in my taste, in a very grim and and unappealing way, this was. Uh, confusing and confounding, but just in a more fun and colorful way. So if you're going to confound me and make me not understand what the hell is going on, making it fun, colorful, and having a lot of uh, like attempts at more joyous moments, um, at least it, that that's more in my aesthetic taste than if you're going to just like pound me to the ground with grim misery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean that that's as best as I can summarize my general feeling having seen this film. I think also a lot of the polarization just has to do with the fact that this is the only superhero movie that we got this year and huh. people want to express themselves and be kind of bombastic in whatever way that they can. Yeah. So it's clickbait to say I love this movie and here are the top 10 reasons why or I hated this movie and these are the top 10 reasons why. But it gets you more press for yourself. What's interesting about the hate of this movie, though, is that there's a lot of fire behind the hate. And well, I, there are also legitimate reasons behind the yeah, hate. Yeah, I'll yeah, say. right. Yeah, we're not trying to. Dismiss. I'm not saying that all of it is clickbait, but I yeah. think in terms of polarization, that is one factor that we might take into account. I would describe our podcast as the opposite of clickbait. <laughs> we <laughs> we have extremely to, moderate opinions about most things. I mean, we try to have conversations in good faith, and we we leave a channel open to our listeners where we engage with them too about their feelings on stuff, and we're not trying to brandish fiery like takes to to lead people down a path of choosing a side and saying this is the way it is we're trying to just examine things uh you know like take a step back and examine things examine our own relationship to things our own biases um what we bring to it and 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 like keep an open mind about stuff i think more than anything we're we're trying to share a love of this like superhero content, Marvel content, DC com- content, with other people who enjoy it too. Yeah, it that, makes us uncomfortable when we have to shit on things. I mean, sometimes it's fun if it's something that's so easily deserving of being shit on. It's universally just like bad in some way that it's not. But I mean, when it, but sometimes, but even those things that are like really bad that yeah. you just have to criticize or pick apart or whatever they have their fans like there's still something that i like about even that content that isn't good you know i mean we find a lot of value in schlock and dreck too personally Mm -hmm. like talking about the linda carter woman wonder woman show that is not technically a good show right but we like vintage television we like superheroes we like campy stuff personally like this is our taste and it, it allows us to appreciate um, things that aren't technically good, like the Wonder Woman show is not uh, The Sopranos, it's not The Wire or Breaking Bad, but it, it's an entirely different category of entertainment um, that satisfies an entirely different uh, need and and whatever sort of like outlet you're looking to waste your time on in the realm of television. So I, there's all these, like, we're trying to always be mindful of these differentiations in evaluating these things and what i just i just i thought that wonder woman 1984 would just be in our standard wheelhouse of superhero movie good bad was you know did they get the costumes right did they get the powers right does the story make sense is it satisfying to evaluate it on those terms but the movie itself i think like to its detriment brings a lot more to the table that <laughs> changes changes the conversation about it that you know um it just makes it a lot more complicated than it probably ever needed to be. Mm-hmm, for sure. So, okay, with all that said, um, let's talk about what we liked about the movie. Because I, I, unlike other people on the internet, as we said previously, we didn't come away thinking this was a top five worst movie of all time, regardless of genre, which is takes I've seen on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. I, just, I thought it was like... Like I said, confounding, but I, I saw some of its charms, and I'm just sitting at home in COVID times anyway, trying to watch, uh, you know, a big commercial movie on a streaming platform. That's mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. attitude I was sitting in my underpants on Christmas morning, <laughs> having watching watching this thing. And so, something I like—I mean, I just like Gal Gadot in general. Um, I just think yeah. she's so beautiful; it's distracting, yeah. and I don't mean that as a bad thing in this movie <laughs> right. whatsoever. 
she's not the best with line delivery. Like, I don't know about her acting skills in particular, but like you kind of don't care. Her screen presence is so captivating. Mm-hmm. Just when you look at her and she smiles and she winks, you're just like, oh. You're, you're enchanted <laughs> by her. She She's... She has a lot of elements. Uh, this might be a funny comparison, but she reminds me of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I can see where that. It's yeah. all, it's about charisma. It's about physical presence, and uh, that can carry a movie a long way. Because even if someone's not a good actor, uh, they're sort of like undeniable physical specialness, and um, and like you said, the way they wink at you, that can be a lot. That can like translate to a lot more endearment. And love for a character than they'd have any right to be, uh, given the actor's like technically poor performance. I mean, Sylvester Stallone comes to mind too. Yeah, totally. Although you know, as an actor, he's technically not sh- beyond Arnold Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. I, I'm sure that's insanely debatable. I, I don't even mean to really com- go down that road because <laughs> I love them both equally. But I just think that Gal Gadot's sort of in that territory. I mean, she's a f- she's a former like Israeli Miss Universe contestant or something. Yeah, and she's legitimately one of the top three most beautiful women in the world. And, you know, and that's like, a, that in itself is a, ve- a really shallow characterization. It is, but also I think screen presence and physicality when you're on screen counts for something. It is it is the movie business after all, right? <laughs> <laughs> is it? Is that what we're talking about? I mean, about? it's Hollywood. It's just, it's, uh, there's a, you never feel guilty for um, enjoying that aspect of, of like, of the world of cinema, of just sort of like reveling <laughs> in the, the insane almost freakish beauty of your Hollywood stars out there, oh, right? which I think Gal Gadot uh, squarely falls into. Mm-hmm. So from the mere standpoint of getting to hang out with Gal Gadot for two and a half hours, which let's say right off the bat too, this movie is way too long. It clearly could have been edited down in a much more coherent way. Yeah. You, you would think, um, Again, it's, it's fun to be with Gal Gadot. And that said, too, it's fun to be with Chris Pine, mm-hmm. who is a way better actor than Gal Gadot, but is in a similar territory of, like, ultra-hunk that, <laughs> um, you know, and, like, super charming that, uh, like, they make for a good pair. Uh, yeah, and he, I think, uh, accentuates her acting skills. When they're on screen together, you appreciate their... It's not even like chemistry in like a romantic kind of way. Is he the Talia Shire to Sylvester Stallone, like the Adrian, you know, to the Rocky? Maybe. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit, right? Exactly like Talia Shire is a good actor. Talia Shire was in The Godfather, and then she's acting alongside Sylvester Stallone, who, you know, is like, uh, like we said before, like he's brilliant for other reasons, but his like specific, like traditional acting skills, not necessarily. I just think his presence helps her on screen. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever seen a Chris Pine movie that I've not enjoyed. I mean, I probably haven't seen every movie he's done. Mm-hmm. But all the big ones, um, you know, that train movie he did with mm-hmm. Denzel Washington, he's great in that. I mean, the Star Trek movies, which have their problems for sure, he still, like, gives a very energetic performance as Captain Kirk. Um, what else was his, like, other, like, enormous roles? They're like, slipping my mind. But anyway, I, I, I just enjoy Chris Pine, too. And Pedro Pascal, as well, is, like, this is the year of Pedro Pascal, really. Yeah, between this and The Mandalorian. Right. And, I mean, he's obviously done other stuff in the past, too. He's had, like, a long uh, career. career. I just, it was, like, amazing. I saw someone was posting a clip recently. He was sort of, like, a minor character on Buffy, where he's wandering around talking to Buffy when she was in college. And oh, he, I didn't know that. They, they part ways, and, of course, vampires attack him in the woods, and he probably becomes a monster himself. <laughs> but uh, he's been around forever, but it's really cool to see that he's really, like, coasting into A-list status this year. And, um, I mean, especially in the case of The Mandalorian, where he basically only has two scenes with the helmet off. I, I it mean, makes he, you so excited for the scenes where the helmet is off, though. Right, yeah. I mean, he's not even on set, supposedly, the whole production of it. Because he's just doing the voiceover like James Earl Jones for Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right, he, he takes his helmet off for a total of two minutes across two episodes. Yeah. And it's, ex- it's just exciting to see him. But and I thought it, he made a great DC villain in this. Yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought the acting was great. He's kind of, like, unhinged. Like, right. the characters, kind like, sometimes he's you take him real seriously and sometimes it borders on that like Cartoony. joker territory yeah. you know yeah i think he's he's definitely bringing all he can to the material he's presented with i, I mean yeah. he like all the other characters are find themselves in a script that is completely led in with insanity mm-hmm. so 
uh, it, and confusion and stereotypes. I, right. I, I'm never going to blame Pedro Pascal for like all the reasons his character may or may not work, or I guess doesn't work in this case. But um, he's still just fun to, to be with, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, my favorite scene with him was probably at the end when uh, he's caught in, like, the middle of a swirling satellite broadcast, and there's wind, and there's lightning, and Wonder Woman's there, and he's just shouting, because uh, he's now the Wishmaster or something, and he's shouting to Diana. He's like, hey, I can make your dreams come uh, true as well. I'm a benevolent man. Or uh, what does he say? He's like, I'm a great guy. <laughs> no, he- I think he says... I forget if he says I'm a reasonable man or <laughs> or, or, or I'm a forgiving man. He just he's forgiving he, a forgiving man. I he's not your was. traditional like sinister viper esque villain. Yeah, who's just all acid and wants to kill people and get murderous revenge. He's he's a conflicted character. And they and, humanize him in all those scenes with right. his son. So it's not like he's just you know one dimensional right. the whole way through. And Pedro Pascal's greatest strength, I think, as an actor is is the humanity he brings to roles and his vulnerability mm-hmm. that he brings. You know, that's really evident. Like it's just written all across his face, and it's great to see uh, Pedro Pascal um, just like act in general. Mm. So in those sense, those three leads are great. I mean, Kristen Wiig, I don't think she works in this movie, which is unfortunate. <laughs> um, I, I mean, in the first part of the movie, she's it's basically Michelle Pfeiffer from Catwoman, mm-hmm. almost beat for beat with the type of character she portrays and then her, her subsequent transformation. Right. Uh, and and the confused messages about femininity and femininity and empowerment. I always wonder about characters like that, or Michelle Pfeiffer, whoever. Like um, this archetype of this girl who's supposed to be so nerdy and overlooked and unseen. It's it's a whole archetype, like, right? Right. It's like, like almost a rom com. And is it like supposed to be identifiable as someone that you know in real life, like? the quiet girl in class or the smart girl you know what, in class you know what, or like to me to me it was such a it's such a rom-com staple of the, the performance she's giving that i saw it as one big abstraction well the rom-com part about it is the transformation they yeah. take a girl who's quote-unquote ugly and right. make her quote-unquote beautiful clumsy only by changing yeah. like her hair and her clothes they take off her glasses and they give yeah it's like a makeover thing right, right. that's the rom-com part the part that i'm saying where she starts out like real nerdy it's like this is a genre that's known to appeal to nerdy audiences <laughs> so is it like is this a tale of caution like don't turn out like this it's- it's, or it's like, just am inver- I reading too much into it? I, okay, it, it's an inversion of the, the 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 superhero tale on the good side, that a lot of superheroes start out nerdy and weak and powerless. Exactly, and yeah. then they get their powers, like Peter Parker or Steve Rogers, right? Uh, or they're, they're disempowered in some way, like Batman is just a little kid when his parents are killed and he can't do anything about it. He has to train for 20 years before he could right. be a, an avenging badass. But they always have some kind of guiding principle. Like, Diana has, yeah, like, right. the truth is what she holds up as this is what high-minded, makes me a hero. High-minded ancient Greek philosophy is embedded in her character. <laughs> right, Batman's exactly. got, like, a moral code. And, like, for me, like, the can- the canonical Batman is the Batman the Animated Series Batman. Uh, yes, I, me too. I think he's got... The, when I think of Batman, I think of that version of him. He's not that cynical. He's got a big heart. Uh, he knows the difference between right and wrong. He's never going to murder anybody. So when I when I speak of Batman, that, that's the one I, I rely on. But I obviously know there's more cynical and more murderous versions of Batmans out, right. out there. But even that really idealistic Batman knows that the world is inherently kind of shitty in a lot of ways. And yeah. it's like you have to do what you can to make it a little bit better. And so many Batman stories are about, like, so many characters had the exact same bad circumstances that befell him as a boy, mm-hmm. but they just they went the other way. Right. And they want revenge. They want to kill the people that ruin their lives as opposed to saving everybody. Mm-hmm. And Batman's the one who made the right choice. And he, you know, he he, and it's like like so like so many of the the ending notes of all those Batman cartoons or like Batman standing over the defeated villain and listening to them sort of like lament and whine about how this is all your fault, Batman. Like, if only you knew my pain. And then you as the viewer know that Batman does know his pain, but Batman chose the higher uh, a path in life. Right, so I'm that's why I'm saying... I'm choked up talking like, about it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying, though, with a character like Cheetah or Catwoman or whatever. Like, is that 
do you think anyway i'm yeah. we're speculating here but do you think that's the basis of making a character who starts out as nerdy and then has to go through this transformation is it supposed to be like audience members identify with starting out from that place and then like like why basically why <laughs> is that an archetype why is that a thing that we know about <laughs> I, I just think it's it's because it's it from a narrative standpoint it um there's a satisfying like start middle and end to it mm. and there's things like you said the the physical transformation the clothing montage going from weak to strong to meek to arrogant to overconfident mm -hmm. like there's all these uh there's all these paths you can draw that just makes sense that are you know that are etched in our human brains of how we understand narratives of you know rising up and falling down, rising up and falling down. So you think it's just a storytelling device? Yeah, it's, it's, they're just gimmicks. I, I mean, and, and the goal of a good screenplay is to try, usually, it's to try to either subvert those gimmicks or find a new spin on them, or it's to embrace the, it's to embrace the, the archetypes and enliven them in some new way to reveal the basic truths we always knew about them in the first place. Mm. You know, so there's like a whole bunch of stuff you could do, you just gotta do it well and the lesson people, you know, like, I don't know if they ever learned this lesson, but it's hard to make movies. It's hard to tell <laughs> stories. Yeah. So you could see, like, so people get so, like, infuriated and enraged when, it, they, when these things fail. But it's, you know, and I'm not saying that they, they shouldn't, they don't have a right to be angry about these things or whatever. But the point is, it's like the creative process is hard because oftentimes there is so many, there are so many colors on your uh, palette that you can draw from. And it's, it's, it gets increasingly harder to keep mixing them in a way to keep them fresh, right? Mm. So, uh, you know, that's why you have filmmakers, in this case Patty Jenkins, probably like taking like flying leaps with a, with a lot of the script mm. and the direction to see if she can land on something new and interesting. And it looks like, I mean, it, it feels like more often than not, she sort of just like fell into a giant like whipped cream pie of like, oh, why did you, <laughs> why did you jump in that direction? Mm. You know, like she just, she really sort of stepped in it kind of thing and we'll get into all that um but still just like capping up on the stuff that's good about it i mean i do like i like the color of the movie i i thought it, <laughs> it i thought it i mean i just like wonder woman the character yeah and wonder woman has just been given a short shrift in mainstream mass media pop culture whereas batman and superman have been given a million movies tv shows etc mm -hmm. wonder woman who is uh on a comic book level essentially equally or almost equally as popular as Batman and Superman. She's part of that holy DC trinity. Uh, she's a great character. And she's, like, big and she's bold. And I just love the sort of tricolor nature of her. I love the whole Greek origin. I like all the, the different comic book variations on her power sets and, uh, you know, her origin tales as well. Um, there's just, like, a lot to like about Wonder Woman, the character. And so... In I that just, standpoint, I'm personally, I'm like kind of like I was rooting for the movie because I just happened to enjoy the character of Wonder Woman and I want it to, to go right. Yeah. Totally. And so there's things I liked in the movie about like when she learns how to fly, which I know a lot of people said was very cringy and it looked really bad, which I'm not, not really going dis to dispute like it looking bad. But <laughs> I, I like the intention behind it. I'm like, yeah, can we please get Wonder Woman to learn how to fly? Because mm -hmm. she's supposed to be able to fly. It's part of why she's so great and powerful. You know, she's almost as powerful as Superman. Uh, you know, in the comics, Batman says, like, she's the best melee fighter in the world. Mm. Like, those are the fun details about Wonder Woman that you kind of wish they'd get into a little bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, and you know, and, like, there's other things. Like, they did it. I thought the sequence with the invisible jet was kind of fun. And, uh, like, you know, they put a, a little bit of a clever spin on it. And they hinted that she 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 sort of inherited a lot of powers from her Greek god ancestors that she's discovering and learning about. And that appeals to me from that... Uh, that whole Hades aspect of I think things. that's like a, a really interesting aspect to these DC characters because Wonder Woman and Superman both have a whole set of lesser known powers that they can just pull out sometimes right, yeah. <laughs> and it's the antithesis of most Marvel characters that have one or two maybe three like really specific powers and they have to be as creative as possible to use those powers to their best advantage I, I mean i remember being shocked when they gave emma frost the diamond skin mm. and then they started going on about secondary mutations and i was kind of like that seems that's not right no i know <laughs> we know what emma frost's powers are but then over time i kind of grew to like it i was like oh this is actually kind of cool that they 
they yeah, like, yeah. Not that it they aren't bit. allowed to add more, right. but just in general, you identify the Marvel characters does, by like their specific right. power set. And there's some things like them, I can never accept, like when they made Jubilee into a vampire or something. Or yeah, when Rogue lost her Captain Marvel powers and got Sunfire's powers, I, I, she might even have the Captain Marvel. I powers just think back. it's one of the great like. Um, joys basically of watching Marvel mo- or content in or reading it whatever yeah. when you like see one of those characters that you know so well and you know their power set so well and they use one of their powers in a new and interesting way and you're like whoa I never thought about being <laughs> able to do that with that power that's so creative that's so cool right. whereas with Wonder Woman and Superman and even Batman to an extent with like his utility belt and his shark spray bat shark spray or whatever right and his like, evolvingly uh, his evolving intelligence over the years right it's like a different type of surprise that they're able to give you because they yeah. have less parameters around and what they can do. definitely part of the charm of DC Comics in particular is that they've got these very old comic book characters that have been, stories have been told for decades at this point, they're legacy characters and they still have the capacity to surprise and um, to me that's part of what's fun about them. It's like this really weird combination between like old dusty ultra retro pop culture and totally brand new futurism that they can keep sort of bringing to these DC characters Mm -hmm. and that's I think for people who don't really know about DC comics I think that's something they'd be surprised to learn if they they started getting into them Uh, which I consider myself like a latecomer to them whereas my entire childhood and teenage years I just read Marvel and I was not really into DC. You know, I liked the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. I liked the Batman animated cartoon show, etc. But I never would, like, bother to get any uh, Batman comics, for instance, right? To go down that well, to read Superman comics, to read Wonder Woman comics. And when I finally started to do it, I, I understood why people love DC comics just as much as Marvel. Because they're basically as good in a different way. And in many similar ways, too, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, again, uh, that's all to say that Wonder Woman's a great character, and it's why why I was a bit of a a softy in the sense of, like, wanting this movie to work despite it being insane and crazy, which now I think we should dive into the the bad, crazy aspect of this movie. (laughs) parts of this movie that we want to overlook but cannot... All right, so I think there's like a few major debates going on the internet right now about this movie that particularly drive have driven people insane. <laughs> okay. uh, which you know, I mean, it, it's kind of amazing this movie did that. I, I I do think part of it. You told this to me earlier that it might be like a COVID psycho- psychosis thing <laughs> that people just have like a lot of pent up anger and rage about a lot of other things going on in the world right now, and that Wonder Woman might be a convenient outlet to to let out a lot of like societal rage they're feeling. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's uh, like bad in and of itself, but it might be. I'm just saying, like, in my viewing, it the internet toxicity around this movie seems particularly crazy, <laughs> more than true. other movies that have been, like, subject to toxic evaluations. Uh-huh. And it, it just might be this weird temporary 2020 thing. I don't know. All right, but um, the, nonetheless, the criticisms are interesting. Uh, so the first one, uh, the whole resurrection of Steve Trevor. Ah, uh, yes. And the body-switching insanity that <laughs> occurs. So, I mean, here's the thing. The movie revolves around a magical dreamstone that makes wishes come true. Before Pedro Pascal, the bad guy, gets the dreamstone, Diana gets it for a minute, and she makes a wish for Steve Trevor to come back, who she's not let go of after 70 years of him being dead, more or less, mm. right? or 65 years or so of him being gone, which is kind of weird in and of itself that Diana would be holding on to a love for that long mm-hmm. and refusing to move on. I mean, in my mind, maybe there's some internal logic that her immortal nature, just like time works differently for her and she's just, I don't know. It's the equivalent of like a year. Right. It's like I, the I, opposite of dog years. Unlike, <laughs> uh, see, uh, Diana has the power of being like the rest of the audience where the last we saw Steve Trevor was in 2017. Mm. And so it's only been three years for Diana despite the fact that in the world of the movie, it's been, uh, you know, 70 years. Right. So um, you would think that the movie would just say, okay, we're bringing Steve Trevor back to life. This is a movie about magic. Who cares? Have him parachute out of the sky in his World War I clothes on the mall in Washington, D.C. and just meet Diana and say, hey, Diana, did we win World War I? Is the day saved? Mm-hmm. Are you okay? Yeah. That would have... 
made it's perfect. magic, right? So right. that would have been fine. Yeah, like, you would just accept it. You said, <laughs> you oh, like, oh, she brought Steve's him back, back to life. Yeah. yeah. Instead, the movie decides to pick the most complicated route possible. <laughs> right. Instead, he's resurrected in the body of this other guy. And she doesn't recognize him at first, but then he what he says to her and the way he talks to her, she realizes that it's, it is actually Steve and she believes him. It's so confusing why they would bring this other man into the storyline. He has nothing to do. There's no payoff for it being him at any point. Yeah. Um, and it's like even extra confusing. They go back to this guy's apartment because <laughs> somehow Steve knew where this guy lived. Well, no, I think he woke up in the bed of the oh, guy's apartment, the guy's so bed, he knows yeah. where he lives. But, like, you know, you see him looking in the mirror, and in the mirror, it's this other guy. Right. And Diana looks at him, and she's like, oh, it's another body, but all I see is you. And, like, for, in her gaze, it's Chris Pine. So it's so but in I'm the like, movie, audience's gaze, we're, we're told to say that this is Chris Pine. It's not another man. Right. But, like, when she's looking at him and, like, having sex with him, like, <laughs> but does she mean literally? Like, she literally sees Chris Pine? Or is it, like, she's so enraptured by her love for Steve that she tricks herself into thinking it's i don't it might be maybe it's a side effect of the the magical dreamstone thing where there's there's an ironic twist punishment to the whole yeah your wish case so is is the punishment for diana that because your wish came true the steve trevor's back that the only way to enjoy him is through robbing the life of another man no the punishment for diana is that she loses her superpowers so okay so this is part of the problem with the movie and the script in general is that the script doesn't make any sense like also the superpowers they seem to be like going gradually it's not like all of a sudden she has no powers. so at first it's not really clear that there's (laughs) going to be a price to the wish like other people seem to pay their price a little more quickly It's, it's a fading photograph from back to the future kind of weird situation yeah and it's not immediately evident that that's what's going on and it's confusing yes and and then i've read like some insane hot takes that essentially diana raped this man because <laughs> because the the guy whose body is didn't consent to having sex mm. and uh listen like wow i think i think that's a step too far like that's where i was turned off by the the whole internet commentary in a sense because i think you're just you're I get that the movie might have led you down this path of of jumping to that logical conclusion, but I don't think the movie the movie clearly wasn't smart enough to no have nobody involved that in bridge. this production thought about that. The movie wanted to have the thing I said before that Steve Rogers fell out of the sky, just accepted it's magic, mm-hmm. but they needlessly complicated it for no reason other yes. than just trying to be a half step too clever. I agree. That's the most major problem with and, this, and they didn't think it, through the implications of all of it. So because in their <laughs> attempt to be a half step too clever, it was it's actually much less clever. Yeah. So I, I'm not gonna like bl- I'm not. I don't blame the movie. I blame the movie for not thinking about itself, not for the conclusions it leaves you with, as if this is like the serious thing that you, you have to comp- you know contemplate and should accept. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right, that's one of the major criticisms. Yeah. <laughs> Another major criticism was. Um, let's get a few trifling ones out of the way. Okay. Like the 1980s <laughs> set and atmosphere. I read a funny one that's like nobody's smoking cigarettes. Right. Which yeah. I think is a fair criticism. Like, yeah, <laughs> they, they would all be smokers smoking. in the 80s. Yeah, they'd all be smoking. I mean, my parents smoked, you know, like. Yeah. It's just like people, you know, cigarettes were just not necessarily seen totally as bad by then or everyone was addicted. It just was part of the culture. Um, there was not enough 80s music. Which you would think you would have gotten a lot of like awesome action scenes with uh, like some classic '80s music. That's like a very Marvel thing, though. Like I almost wonder if that was a conscious choice because they didn't want to just follow in the footsteps of Marvel's style. I mean, it's most action movie style is to have some clever pop music playing. In a... Are most action movies set in a different time period? No, than but the even if they're even if they're not set in a different time period, they just have you could just still have cool music playing. Yeah. Uh, in the background, I mean, okay. you know. Uh, Reservoir Dogs is like one of the few Quentin Tarantino movies that take place in its contemporary times of when it was filmed, and they've got you know, like those classic sixty songs playing during the most dramatic moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, stuck in the middle with you when he's cutting the guy's ear off, for instance. Yeah. So there's like an art to it. And no, you... I agree. The the movie would have been better, right? I with think a better so too. Soundtrack, but I'm just wondering if they made a conscious choice to not. Because Marvel the... does that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Marvel I, makes a big deal. I out guess you said like, like Guardians of the with, Galaxy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
um yeah maybe i i just they, i don't know i don't know what they're thinking maybe they just cheaped out and they don't want to get the licensing for like more duran duran music or uh, you know like maybe but i mean this was not band. a cheap movie to make if that's where you cut the corner uh, but okay a bad. lot of criticisms were that looked really bad the cgi uh-huh what the lasso i don't know i mean like her flying and oh. her running in with like a flat background in the desert right yeah okay so cheetah um which is like if DC cheaped out on it, it doesn't make sense. One, they had like an extra six months to do more post production, mm. given it getting pushed back. And these aren't original thoughts I'm saying right here. This is stuff I've read as well, which mm-hmm. I agree with. Uh, and two, um, like the first movie was a bona fide hit, so you'd think they'd have faith to put more money into it. Maybe they felt like they had to cheap out once they realized it wasn't going to be a theatrical release, and they were worried about how much money. I'm really just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so okay, so the '80s like vibe and stuff. It feels like if you're gonna call a movie a movie Wonder Woman 1984, have a bit more fun with the '80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought the whole Chris Pine fashion thing and like him being odd at the modern world was like pretty effective and yeah. pretty comical. And like I like that stuff. And the movie slowed down and did a lot of the, those like comic beats. It was cute because like the whole thing in the first movie was her being a fish out of water because she didn't know about modern times and dress codes and all that stuff so then they flipped it and made him the fish out of water this time so yeah all right um so those were some of the more like trifling criticisms yeah uh i I guess and then like okay some serious ones are with Kristen wig let's get to the the big scene that a lot of people are talking about Mm. so she gets she wishes to be strong and and confident like diana and little does she realize that diana is a superhero so she actually ends up gaining diana's superpowers um, at the cost of her humanity and her good sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. At least that's what Diana's theory at the end of the movie. I don't know if that's explicitly clear or not um, from the perspective of Kristen Wiig. But anyway, so there's a scene where Kristen Wiig is being harassed by a guy in the street. It's the same guy who's harassing her earlier in the movie. It looks like the guy is like an, an attempted rapist. Uh, the, the movie is strongly implying that she's going to get raped like if this guy's allowed to continue to carry on Mm -hmm. so now that she's got superpowers she proceeds to beat this guy to a bloody pulp and as she's doing so the music fills with menace right and then there's a moment where the guy's about to die like one more punch he'll be dead and uh kristen wig is only stopped by a homeless man who she had befriended earlier like a nice homeless man who she brings food to when she was a good person he sees what she's doing she's like uh hey Kristen Wiig um maybe you don't want to kill this guy right now what's going on here and she's she has a very curt reply where she's like oh just mind your own business and she does stop herself and she walks away now people and this is like the moment that's clearly in the movie presented as this is her turn to villainy and people are like and I think probably justified She's a villain because she wants to kill the guy that was, like, potentially going to rape and or kill her. Mm-hmm. So how do you interpret the scene and what's your reaction and, like, how, you know, how much did this detract from your sort of, like, going along with the movie as best you could? <laughs> the, well, to start out, before things turned serious with her, <laughs> I was thinking to myself... When her or Diana are walking down the street and getting catcalled in this movie, the frequency and manner in which it's done, apart from this one guy who like takes it too far, I, I really was watching and being like, wow, that's pretty accurate. I've never really seen it that accurately done in a movie before. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a surprise to a lot of men uh, listening. I, I mean, I don't know, but that was my first thought about uh-huh. it. Um, I could see like how the script writers in their minds with their gears turning they were like okay we need a scene for Kristen Wiig to have like a turning point right right and this was maybe like their first instinct (laughs) yeah I I don't know why exactly it's it's edited poorly with the musical choices and the heightening of tension I'm not because trying... it sends a mixed message. Yeah, I'm not because, trying like, to I think excuse the movie, it as a choice. The movie, but... I think, the movie is clumsily trying to say that you shouldn't kill people who break the law. They're trying They're, to like, show like if, that if Diana this is... was being attacked, she would take the attacker to prison or to a, to the police station. Not she wouldn't kill the person and leave them on the street. Exactly. They're show they're trying to show a stark difference between how Diana acted in this situation was to just like punch the guy and move on, versus how Kristen Wiig is now 
approaching the situation, which is with lethal intent, with much more vengeance. <laughs> right. And you're supposed to think back to Diana's moral education as a girl, where nothing is more important than the truth, and you stand for goodness and honesty no matter what. Right. But you don't know what Kristen Wiig's background is, and these are so you assume that she wasn't raised with that same moral compass, right. and mean, that's what leads her down this bad path. And these are values that Superman and Batman have as well. That there's lines they're not going to cross because they're so morally high-minded. However, and Kristen Wiig... It allows them to be vigilantes, in a sense, and take the law into their old hands because you trust right. them. Which is, like, a whole other set of moral implications that, like, I mean, that's the whole story various of, superhero media get into. Right, but that's the story of superheroes, right? That, like, you you trust Bruce Wayne to, to be Batman because he's so good-hearted. Same with Clark Kent to be Superman. Because you so know they're going to do the right thing. Kristen Wiig, however, only just got her superhero powers <laughs> yeah. yesterday. So, like... Not that she can't be a moral person outside of having superhero powers, but, like, this is new for her. But but then Diana blames it all on the magic of the crystal, saying that the crystal mo- robbed you of your morality, of which you used to have. Right. Which is not exactly made clear either, because Kristen Wiig's character is aggrieved in her meek self. But just going back to that archetype that we were talking about, about the nerdy girl has the transformation. Yeah. In most, even rom-coms have a similar thread going through them, where once the girl goes through the transformation and she throws away her glasses and lets down her hair and changes her clothes, like gets her makeup on, usually there's some kind of moral choice that she has to make where it's like, well, now she's like the pretty popular girl, so she's expected to also be mean. And it's like she pays some kind of social or moral price for the transformation that she's gone through. Yeah, right, the, the classic Mean Girls thing. Yeah, so... The, Which wasn't the first place to go there, either. Right, so, like, what what is the movie trying to say, really? Like, is there supposed to be some kind of feminist message in this? Like, it's like just she's similar empowered to, now? I mean, the way I or read like, it, it's just similar to Catwoman from Batman Returns. Uh-huh. That Michelle Pfeiffer was a, a, a trodden-upon woman... And then she gets some powers, and her brain goes crazy. Right. And so she becomes Catwoman. It's just not a great message <laughs> in the end. It's like reinforcing the idea that women shouldn't have power, because once <laughs> they do, look what I happens. Mean, and that was the Tim Burton interpretation, <laughs> let's be clear. I, you know, the, the comic book Catwoman is a cat burglar who has like her own agency, and she doesn't have magical power she's just the best cat burglar there is right yeah and she's got a lot of like i said she's got a lot of um like a self agency in the way she conducts her life and the choices she makes and the way she screws around with batman mm-hmm. you know um so uh, like the movie versions of these characters are often insane and askew especially when it comes to these female characters mm-hmm. all right so i i, I I, was, sorry, I forgot I, even what your question was. I just was don't even that. know. I don't even know what to say about it. Like, because I, I get that the internet is angry over this, and I agree. I think they're right, but I also think I still think it's an overreaction from the sense that this is a stupid movie, mm-hmm. and to like get so bent out of shape about it is to give the movie more credit than it deserves. But then again, I might be so out of touch from the standpoint of like I don't know. I feel like a lot of it has to do with like what people felt they were promised from the first Wonder Woman movie. And what... I think it's more like the overarching theme of this movie is that everything is really muddled and they get into a lot of moral territory that they don't actually have a good point or message that they come around <laughs> yeah, to. They, they don't know how to close the loop. Or open it even. Like, I'm not really sure what they're trying to say with a lot of the scenes that are in here. And they get into, like, pretty controversial territory without, you know, it's no X-Men. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So, and then let's get through, like, the last major criticism that I've seen that is, like, um, you know, push people off the deep end of, like, that added to the toxicity of the discourse behind this film. Mm. And that's the politics of the movie. Mm. Now, I mean, there's a couple of major points, uh, plot points. One, Pedro Pascal, he's got the power to give anyone any wish they want. And his initial motivation, and let's say, too, that Pedro Pascal's motivation throughout the whole movie is shifting and confusing. It's not clear what he wants and, like, why his mind changed and then what his goal becomes at a later point. Well, at first, he wants to make a lot of money in the oil business. Right. And then he wants to make more money in the oil business. Right. And then he wants to be, what, like, God or something? And, like, ha- and, like rule the world? 
but ultimately you find out at or the grant end everybody's wish like i wasn't quite sure <laughs> like, yeah it's again really muddy and kind of confusing at the end you find out that it's really just that he wants to make his son proud and he wants to win the love of his son which i think pecho sells yeah despite everything despite like, everything because he's so he's, he hugs his kid at the end and apologizes for making mistakes and stuff and you're, you're, he apologizes like, for the whole oh. movie <laughs> <laughs> um so anyway so when he's just trying to be, rule the world of oil he goes to the middle east there is an egyptian oil baron which is kind of an anachronism uh, given that Egypt, like, famously... Doesn't have oil. Doesn't have oil, and that's, like, a big part of, like, the history of geopolitical what, you know, have you in the Middle East throughout mm-hmm. the ages. Mm-hmm. So there's this ultra-powerful Middle Eastern... I mean, not Middle Eastern, uh, Egyptian oil baron. Um, Pedro Pascal wants his oil, so he goes up to him, he's like, here, hold my hand, tell me what you wish for. And it should also be said, too, that now that Pedro Pascal has the powers of the Dreamstone, he gets to set the price of what the ironic punishment is. But I wish they would have told us that. It's very unclear. In the movie. And it's <laughs> at, unclear like, how the contract works. Yeah. yeah. The, the contract of wishes makes no sense. And, and also, let's say, too, the ending where like people have to physically renounce their wish by saying, I renounce my wish. It's unclear how everyone realizes how to do that. It makes sense that Diana puts that together. But how the rest of the world makes sense of that, like, I don't know. The movie is swirling with wind and paper at that point. That's a corny way to have to br- renounce your wish. And, yeah. And also, it makes no sense that anybody else would figure that out. My friend uh, Ned, who wanted a shout-out on this podcast, because he was very upset. He was texting me about this movie. He didn't like, too, that the, the movie explicitly said that the Dreamstone's like a monkey's paw, like, three times. <laughs> he says, like, we get it. It's the monkey's paw. You don't have to say it's the monkey's paw. It's just, like, so stupid. It, so, yeah, it's true. This so, is one of those cases where it's, like, you should show and not explain. Right, and that's so, what makes it a good movie. So there you go, Ned. If you're listening, your complaint was registered. <laughs> uh, anyway, um... Okay, so the oil baron's wish is that his familial dynasty is restored so that he would be in power of all of Egypt and all the foreigners are banished outside of the country again. And, and this like, isn't the first instance of a wish like this being granted or happening in the movie. There's like a throwaway scene too where I, like these two people in England are getting into a fight and a woman wishes a man, I wish your people would all go back to where they came from. And it's impli- I guess it's implied that he's Irish. And then the camera pans to the street and you see police presumably picking Irish people off the street and throwing them in the back of their police wagons to uh, deport them from the United Kingdom. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes indeed. I just wanted to mention that because that blew my mind when I saw that scene. <laughs> I couldn't believe what was happening. Yeah. Um, well, the oil baron gets his wish, and an enormous, like, 50-foot wall goes up, I guess, around all of Egypt. Major highways are cut off. Fresh water sources are cut off from communities that need it. Like, it's a big problem. Um, I, I just, like, watching the movie at the time, I didn't, like, fully process what was wrong with all this. I just had that feeling inside of, like, this isn't good but so much like, was happening though and i just couldn't really understand what was happening yeah. a lot of the time. it's such a like <laughs> insane spectacle i was at the time i was chalking it up to a big like historical what if that you might see in a comic where mm-hmm. like the nazis took over america and they're you know they blow up the statue of liberty or something and a nazi flag falls from the white house you know right windows or something you know what i mean like i i thought that's what was happening at first um but it's just all the it's not tied up neatly like that, and there's no real like moral message from any of it. They're just like doing a caricature of this Arab guy and making him into a horrible bad guy. And Which he's not. He's not, and it's... And he, he actually, you see him suffering the consequences of his wish later. But it's still, it's just there's something, like the fact that they, they attempted to navigate these waters, these very like relevantly controversial hot-button hot uh, geopolitical issues... It's just insane for Wonder Woman, I think. It's just really a misfire. It's, you know, like... And that's not even, like, like, like preloading all the stuff with Gal Gadot and her being, you know, having been in the Israeli army and uh, all the, um, you know, the hist- year's history of conflicts between Israel and Egypt and Palestine. Like, all that stuff that comes preloaded. Um, right. And it's like, you can't not think about that if you're the scriptwriter on this movie, because you knew that Gal Gadot was going to be Wonder Woman again. Right. I mean, so, if Gal Gadot was fighting, and I'm not trying to, like, explain the movie, uh, explain away the problems of the movie, or, or say, like, this is how you should have done it. But if she was, like, literally 
like finding anywhere else i don't think these issues come up and anyone's like really like like trying to examine the, the moral implications of gal gadot having served in the idf and what all that means Right. right. Like, you know, that's probably true. She's fighting in northern Canada somewhere against Sasquatch. It's I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like, unfortunately, comic books and superhero storylines do have a long history of making these racist caricatures out of the bad guys. Right. <laughs> but also a lot of those issues have been brought to light as like not productive in society. And you would think that in 2020 we wouldn't be creating more problems like that i mean and you know iron man 3 uh is not the best iron man movie and it did annoy a lot of fans because they promised the comic book mandarin Mm. and what marvel decided to do was subvert it because like we can't do the mandarin that's like an ultra racist character that's too racist born out of like (laughs) uh quote-unquote yellow fear from the 1960s and the vietnam war and all this shit like fear of like the orient and like all this stuff uh, they completely subverted expectations with that. They they turned it on its head, and it, it in the end it, they ended up um, humorously having their cake and eating it too in a way that like it was really hard to criticize or get on them about in any way whatsoever. Right? Mm. DC did not do a good job in that respect here. Yeah. So uh, I mean, you can't you can't just say like. Oh well, the movie's like still kind of entertaining because it's so bad, it's good. It's like this clusterfuck that you can't miss. I mean, because that's kind of how I—that was my immediate reaction to it after it was over. I was like, "Wow, what an entertaining clusterfuck of a movie! This is wild." But then it's like the the online reaction, uh, and to try to wrap things up here, was so like angry and toxic, and people were annoyed. And I'm not saying they're wrong in any way, but. Um, it's uh, it's just it's just unfortunate that this was the result of of a movie that was like I, I'm guessing the attempt was to uplift and inspire in much of the ways that the one from 2017 did. Mm. You know, yeah, it failed big time on that account. Yeah, it's a bummer because there's it's like it's loaded up with all this this stuff that. Um, you can't just ignore and say, like, people are overreacting to whatever. But at the same time, my my sadness, too, is connected to the fact that 2020 was filled with so much of this intense online warring amongst people, especially in the political context, that I think most people are just wiped out, tired from it. Mm. And that you're, like, like, right now, at the very end of 2020... We're like just desperately hoping on to the glimmer of hope that maybe 2021 is just going to be a little bit better and we can get away from this completely divisive, like endless series of culture wars, wars we're all having with each other, no matter what side of the fence you're on. And the, the fact that Wonder Woman 1984 just adds more fuel to the fire, it, it just that bums me out more than anything mm-hmm. that like, can we just please escape this? like endless yelling yelling and arguing and all this stuff and uh, can we like have something to like unite and rally behind that's uplifting and good and positive and you know this movie tried there's like a lot of scenes that were very emotional where the actors are certainly trying they're trying to be heroic uh you know i, I was touched by some of the, the romance scenes like cringy as they might have been um but you know, it's just it's 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 just a shame. I mean, those are my final thoughts on it. Do you have? Do you want to summarize your final thoughts, Sonia? Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I think there is a bigger cultural burden on Wonder Woman and Black Panther to be like representatives for little children everywhere, little girls and black kids, and right. like to be you know here's the hero that you can look up to and stuff but you know obviously also it's equally important for boys to see wonder woman as like a, you know cool. this is normal right like, <laughs> yeah this is cool like this is exciting you know? and just like it's, it's not a joke right and same thing with black panther it's it's important for all kids to see like black panther as a, a superhero heroic like, and yeah, right exactly and strong uh, like i don't i don't know like did it accomplish that at least like well hopefully for little children who watch the movie all the political stuff goes over their heads and they can get the uplifting message from the film 
Uh, I don't know. And not all the other implicit stuff that we're nitpicking around here. I mean, they'll grow, they'll grow up one day and understand it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So if it had a positive message on them at some point and then later on they discover it to be screwed up, I mean, I guess we'll have to just wait and see, but I don't know. It's This was a tough podcast uh, to record. Yeah. I so wanted to like this movie, and, I, and part of me kind of did. Um, but still, it's just it's just depressing that we have to have culture wars. I hate them so much. Yeah. <laughs> That's my biggest takeaway from the movie. I hate the culture war. I wish it would end. I wish people would just love each other and we could all have arguments in good faith and uh, just be more forgiving of each other and more open-minded in general. Yeah. I, I just would say, uh, in closing here, if you're a Wonder Woman fan, whether you see this movie or not, if you have access to HBO Max, just go watch the 1970s Linda Carter TV show and be entertained. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. That's a great idea. Let's all watch the Linda Carter show from 1975, enjoy it for its campy cheesiness, um, and and uh, you know revel in the, the wondrous performance of Linda Carter from then. And who, you know, she gets a nice little tribute in this movie, too. That That's the best part of this movie. Was <laughs> the very end, when the you end. see Linda Carter. Uh-huh. Um, so that's all I have to say, Sonia. Um, do you have any final words before we go? Nope. Good night, everybody. Good night.